good songs this morning. Would you join me, Romans 15, Romans 15, you will have, I hope you go ahead and find your way there, you'll have plenty of time, I'm going to do something a little different this morning, a longer introduction, we usually jump right into the text, but we need to do some, not as much review, but application, all right? So what we're going to start with in our introduction is going to sound almost like it would be uh, the conclusion and the invitation time, but it, it'll be right there in your seat, okay? So I really want to invite you to follow along, uh, and in a little bit, we'll read our text this morning, Romans 15. You there? I realized this morning, across the, the worship center and some folks that will listen later by way of recording that some of you have been here like each of the previous five weeks when we started in Romans 14 and went through Romans 15 verse 7. So we've had five messages. I don't remember all of those sermon titles. Uh, no one was love and live with a clean conscience. There was budge and don't judge. There was receive, don't grieve. Uh, so we had different titles. So here's the thought I want to share with you by way of introduction. Again, this will take us a few minutes. For five weeks, we've been acknowledging that there are differences among God's people. It's like been the common theme with every introduction the last several weeks. There are differences. Here's the thought I want to give you this morning. Again, it is okay that there be differences. Hopefully, we've learned that as we've gone through Romans 14 with the weaker brother and the stronger brother. We... First week, we jumped in and talked about, you know, the weaker Jew and the stronger Jew and the weaker Gentile and the stronger Gentile. And we've just been realizing for, for over a month, we have differences and that's okay. But at some point, we have to stop and ask ourselves the difficult questions. We have to. What I want to do is ask some of those questions this morning, but really more than that, what will do you the most good is to go home in a quiet place, maybe take this list of things and wherever the Lord would take you and answer the following question. You ready? Lord, who are the kinds of people that are different than I am that I really need to start seeing them and treating them better than I have been? Got to do this. Until we take this step, we're only informed and we're not changed. So we can listen to Romans 14, get all the theology just right. Okay, got it. But if we don't rehearse these truths in such a way, guys, where they actually, I mean like rehearse them in our conscious thinking. I've got to bring this into my conscious thinking over and over so much so that it seeps down into my subconscious so that when I see someone who's different than me, I do not take a stance of judgment or despising them. What are the kinds of people? Ask the Lord. Lord, deal with me in my exact situation because our exact situation is probably not the same as they were dealing with 2,000 years ago in Romans 14. So I want to take a moment. Let's go there now. I have several questions, several areas to ask the same question over and over, like a dozen ways, maybe even 13, 14 ways. Let's do it. Don't answer out loud. But what differences in a person makes it difficult for you to... I didn't have this word early on when I typed this out, but I've added it later. What differences in a person makes it difficult for you to fully accept them? 
Their differences make it hard for me to fully accept them because I'm going to tell you, all of us go through lives, our lives with these very broad and inaccurate generalities. We do it. I dare say you probably will not escape this list. I hope you escape this list like, by God's grace, none of those things affect me. Some of you will be like, wow, that's me. That's like three of them are going to hit you. It could be as simple as this first one. Here we go. You go through life with broad and inaccurate generalities in how you view people who are different than you are in age. Age. Like, Jeff, you really, it's Sunday morning. Clock's ticking. You're going to talk to us about age? Be honest with yourself. When you see little kids, do you not only look down at them practically and geographically because they're short? Do you in your mind, like, look down at them like, wow, wow, these kids running around here. Do you look at teenagers like, boy, I'm glad that guy's coming. I don't know his name, but I'm glad he and his wife are coming because they can work with them. I sure don't want to work. Teenagers these days, is that you? I was in, I said I was at a conference yesterday. One of my sessions, there was a man who I believe three different times, and I could tell from his tone and the time he brought it up, three different times used the phrase 20s and 30s. And he wasn't looking at them as his favorite people. Well, you know, the 20s and 30s, they just, and he was like, they really irritate this man. I could tell you, he wasn't a speaker, by the way. He was a man sitting beside me in one of the sessions. Is that you? Check your heart. Can you honestly say, you yeah, somebody's like a good bit, not like a little younger, a good bit younger than me? I, I do. I kind of have a, I look down. Hey, flip the script. Is anybody in here, if somebody's over 25, you're like, I don't have any use for somebody that old. And if they're 50, 60, 70, like, oh, really? I just, oh, old people. Check your heart. There's differences. Differences are good. They're not bad things. Do you let those differences keep you away from people and keep them separate from you? Here's one. Gender still exists. I know this is a hot-button topic, but be honest. Is it in your heart right now, like, guys, men, I just have no use for them. Or are there any men who have this mentality? I've read the Bible, and I'm just going to tell you, and in your heart of hearts, you really believe women, females, are second-class Christians. They really need to walk about a step or two behind the men. Is that the mentality? It's not the way God thinks. They might outrank you in the next life. Be careful. Those little kids that you can't stand right now, they may outrank you. She might outrank you. The woman you're married to might outrank you in eternity. You're in the test right now. Do you treat her properly? Here's another one. Skin color. Literally, skin color. Are we still there? It was brought up to me this week and I had to tell somebody straight up, oh yeah, I know about racism. I was born a racist. I was taught to be a racist. It was all around me. It was the air I breathed. Had to unlearn it. You say, what made you unlearn it? Just continually being exposed to the Word of God. Someone's skin, literally, same exact person. Maybe a little different bone structure, a little bit, little bit different skin pigment. But you have to acknowledge they still have two eyes, two arms, two legs. They have a soul, spirit, and a body just like you. A mind, just nervous system, digestive system, circulatory. Everything's the exact same. Just the skin's a little bit different. And you look down because they're different than you. How does that fly? God is not telling you to do that. That's you doing that. Sin. I told you it would take us a few moments. Here's one. 
If someone's different than you, is it difficult for you to accept them? Difficult for you to accept them if they're born in a different region of the country. You know what I'm saying? You come across people who are where I'm from and they talk slow like me with a little draw and an accent. Is your first thought is, let's be honest, dumb southerners. They're as ignorant as the day is long. Almost like we're genetically stupid once you cross the Mason-Dixon line. Like something biologically, they're just not as, like, really? That's kind of how we were reared and raised and, okay, uh, flip that script. If someone's born in the Northeast, check yourself. Do you honestly still, and you have a little word that goes with it, and you may say, ah, oh, it's funny, it's chuckled, but is it more than that to you? Is like, oh, If they're born in the Northeast, uh, they're rude, arrogant, and pushy, bossy. Broad generalization, all of them. They have to prove they're not. That's not God. God didn't give that to you. And you're sitting there, you're figuring out like, man, I, he usually does the preaching stuff after he's read the text. We've been in the text for five weeks, right? It's time we start like, all right, Lord, deal with me. Go ahead. Where am I, where am I still doing? Theirs was Jew-Gentile. My issue here, theirs was foods and holy days. Lord, deal with me. I don't struggle with those things, but ah, man. Intellect. Someone's maybe gifted and they've done something with it and you kind of don't like them because of that. Or again, flip the script. Someone's not as gifted as you are. And you look down at them because they're not as smart as you are. Here's a big one. Clothing choices. Do you just run across someone who dresses differently? Than, by the way, I'm not talking about what the scripture says is the dividing line. You say, Jeff, what is, what is the line on dress and appearance? The biblical word, the biblical model, the idea there is modesty. Modesty. Everybody needs to remember this. The Bible talks about possessing your vessel. You have a body. You need to possess your vessel. And how you present that in such a way that you do not defraud your brother or your sister. You're like, defraud. What in the world does that mean? You don't stir up wrong feelings. Don't live in your body in such a way where you stir up anger or jealousy or envy or bitterness or lust. That would be defrauding. You're doing them a disservice. You're leading them. Now, it is still their fault, but you're sure not helping them. But I'm not talking about that. Watch this. You don't care for people because the pattern, the style, the cut, the color, the texture is just not what you would wear. I don't, hey, we've all been to the mall. We've all seen the four teenage girls, right? They're all the same. They're not the same height with the same color and everything. But oh, there's, the, there's the headband girls. Right? Obviously, they all like, every last one of them have headbands. Here comes a group of guys. They all have athletic shorts, tank tops, tennis shoes, and socks at the exact same height. They're, wow, that's just, they're all the same. They kind of group together. If we're not careful, we will go through life with that same mentality that I want to go to a church where everyone looks and dresses like me. Yeah, they have the same pattern, same cut, same texture. Yeah, look, see, see we're alike. We're, you're welcome. I receive you. And you come across, who does she think she is wearing? that we're not talking about modesty it's just different careful I can't take this long on all of these one we've hit on recently translation preferences is that such a difference that you have to make a distinction and separate apparent strictness notice I'm saying apparent strictness 
they're really strict, and I just don't like them, and they have so many rules, and they're not Bible or apparent looseness. They're just loose in how they live. They don't have all the rules and the standards that I have, and so they're different, and I just, they might be saved, but barely. Another one. Political affiliation. Uh-oh. Yeah, he said it. Does someone being of a different political affiliation make you mentally, as soon as you find it out, I look down on you? Is that you? Have you been saved so long and you've yet to figure out some of the best Christians in America are Democrats? Have you not figured that out yet? Some of the best Christians in America are Republicans. Some of the best Christians in America are are independents. Have you figured that out yet? And do you know that some of them, their faith is what drives them? I'm a Republican. Why? My faith drives me to that. Why are you a Democrat? My faith. I just believe Jesus would literally be this way. And they're all about that, but driven by their faith. I and here's the other, like, you guys got some good things and you have some good things, but you got some terrible things and you're way off there. And they're independent. Please, don't just like, oh, you're one of the, and now you're down in my eyes. You're not really welcome in our group. That's not Romans 14 and 15. Wealth. Poverty. Someone that's blessed, does that make you not like them? Because they've taken the gifts and talents God's given them. Someone has not been blessed with what you've been blessed. Does that make you look down at them? Etiquette. Someone is proper and maybe even went to charm school. And they're, they're, again, they carry themselves and, and they're a certain way. And does that make you like, I don't really like them. They're too tight. Or someone else in your mind lacks cooth, just basic cooth. What's wrong with them? Does that make you look down at them? Careful. Now, here's my next question. In a moment, we'll read our text. Do you do well looking past these things for two or three hours on a Sunday morning? Because you're like, hey, you know what? Grace View has like a variety in every one of these areas. I've watched. It didn't occur to me till later. We have a variety of ages and genders and skin colors and country parts of the country people were born in intellect and clothing choices and translation preferences and apparent strictness. Some are more strict and some are more loose. Political affiliation, some are wealthy and some are more just really, really struggle financially. Some have more etiquette and some by those people's uh, judgment and, and guidelines would have not quite so much etiquette. We're all over the board in this. I like that. I'm just going to I like that. I Now, hear me, hear me next. I'm, I'm going to get to the text in a moment because here's why. Truth matters truth matters and so i'm not just saying oh anything goes but where the word of god draws the line we're going to dig in our roots and say that's what matters the truth matters that's where we're going to build on that's where we're going to find our commonality these other things i hope here's here's my prayer you by the way you might be there you might be there I hope Graceview becomes, if it is not already, becomes the most blind church in Anderson to the issues that I read a while ago. I hope we just, like, only notice. Gender, age. So you use the New American Standard, use the NIV, use the King James, use the New King James. You know that I preach from the ESV. You know what? That's fine. Do you read it is the key. Do you actually read the Word of God? Do you try to put it into your life? Let's find our common ground there. Oh, you're of that political persuasion. I'm this. I hope we become the most blind of that, but I hope we become the most discerning of truth. 
I can spot truth. I can hear untruth. That's where I hope we really start drawing a line. Like, oh, that's not right. That's biblical. So, Jeff, where in the world are you getting all this from? Romans 14, early part of Romans 15. Could we have our text on the screen? Look, just first of all, verse 7. Before I even read the other verses, look at verse 7. Paul is drawing the weaker and the strong argument in this, this whole teaching that he's been on for 30 verses. He boils it down in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Would you look this way? Could we agree here? The gap between you and another Christian, it may be large and like, well, these people are all like me. These over here, are, there's a gap between me and them. Can I promise you this? The gap between you and them is nothing compared to the gap between you and the Son of God. And yet He welcomed you into God's family. And so if He welcomes us, can we not welcome one another? There's a little bit difference there. MacArthur words it this way. If the perfect, sinless Son of God was willing to bring sinners into God's family, how much more should forgiven believers be willing to warmly embrace and accept each other in spite of their disagreements over issues of conscience? If he did that, he had a monopoly on the family of God. He lets us in. Look at the gap between us and him. Can we not look over some of these issues that we try to make walls instead of seeing it as, wow, look how great our God is. He loves Democrats and Republicans. He loves old and young. He loves the black. He loves the Korean. He loves the Chinese. He even loves the Europeans. Look what a God we serve. Can we now read the text? Verse number 7 again through verse 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome each other for the glory of God because Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you, this is a tricky text today. I, I wrestled with this and prayed and said, Lord, show me what are the points of this and I don't know that I've really grasped it all yet. I'll be honest with you. I really don't know that I have a handle on it. I'm going to take a, a, a perspective. We'll give it a shot. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Obviously, he's talking about the Jews. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Why? To show God's truthfulness. Christ became a servant to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. How? Why? In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Christ becomes a servant, becomes a servant to the Jews to show the truthfulness of God, to confirm the promises made Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the fathers, the patriarchs. But he continues, and in order, why did he become a servant? And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So to keep the promises to them and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. And then he goes into this string of four texts. He strings together four texts from various parts of what we call the Old Testament. Paul says, as it is written. Here's an example. David. 2 Samuel, David in the Psalms writes the following. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. And sing to your name. Paul says, did you read what David said? David said, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Well, that's not the only passage. 
Verse 10. And again it is said, quote, Rejoice from Deuteronomy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Hey, you Gentiles, rejoice with His people. Come over here, join them. Verse 11. And again, another passage, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the people extol Him. And as if that wasn't enough, Paul says, here's another one. These are samples. It's all through there, though somehow they missed it. Verse 12, Paul says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. So you have, watch, Obed, Jesse. Obed is the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. David has many sons after him, eventually through Mary, the biological mother of the man Jesus, who is the Christ, and Joseph, who adopted Jesus, the man who is the Christ, both go back to David through multi-generations. Watch what, verse 12 again. Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, so here we have this one who's above Jesse, Obed, Jesse, David. You say, wait a minute. Jesus is the descendant of David, but here we see he's both descendant of David and ancestor of David. He's the root and the shoot, we could say. Verse 12. The root of Jesse will come. Even him who arises, not just arising like Nebuchadnezzar or a Pharaoh arose, but yes, it is that, but it's also more than that. I believe this is a hint to arising from the dead. You say, Isaiah wrote about this? Yes. The root of Jesse will come. Talking about Jesus Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. Oh, he's going to rule. He's going to conquer. He's going to put them down. No, wait, wait. Look how their attitude. In him will the Gentiles hope. This is a good thing. The Gentiles will hope in this. Verse 10 again, going back to the Deuteronomy. The Gentiles will rejoice. This is a welcome thing. And in verse 13, Paul, breaking from the quotes, says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Read it again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I don't know about you. I wish I could read the text again. Really, I wish I could read it three times and you would say, well, I'll tell you one of the things I see. I see the work of the Trinity is involved in this text. I don't know how it all ties together. And I don't know how it really ties back to the weaker brother, stronger brother. I don't know how that all goes there. But I see the work of the Trinity. And so I'm going to play a little bit off of that today, if you would, in your handout. Number one. Three thoughts. Number one. This stood out to me. God makes promises that are true. Do you see it? God makes promises that are true. Verse number eight. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God makes promises. Now, this is important what I'm about to say. We have to get a right perspective. God need not make promises. God did not have to make promises. Go back when God made creation. There it is. There's a physical creation. Angels puts man in it. Man sins. All the descendants of Adam's sin. God does not owe us one thing. He does not have to say one thing to anybody. No promises need be made. And yet God makes promises. No one can strong arm God. God, you have to bless me. You have to do good things for me. Good luck with that. That never works. 
You cannot do this. You cannot pull a passage out of the Bible that is applied to someone else properly and take it out of its context and misapply it to yourself and expect God to fulfill it and get angry when he doesn't. Doesn't work. God does not have to answer and keep and confirm promises that do not apply to you. I want you to hear this. He owes you nothing. He has to make no promises to anyone. But when he did, everything changed. God made promises. Once he puts himself out there and says, I will do something, it is going to happen no matter what. He doesn't have to make promises, but he does. God is the God, if you want to write it down. God is the God not just of promises made. God is the God of promises kept. That's what verse 8 is about. Paul says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show the truthfulness of God. We'll show them that God is truthful. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, it looks like they're not happening. Jesus says, I'll go make those happen. I'll bring them to pass. God is truthful. You will see that God is truthful. Again, he's not just the God of promises made. He's the God of promises kept. About 27 years ago, I used to work pest control. And I was with a local company here. Actually, I was living in Greenville, but I was with a local company in Anderson for 10 months. So I would drive down. I will not say the company that I worked for, but I will name the salesman. His name was Fred. You won't know anything other than that. His name was Fred. Fred liked to go to different houses and make big promises of what the service techs would accomplish. All right? So he's sale. He's going to get the, the sale. It's going to cost so much money. $30 for the initial clean out. $30 a month. 360 let's go ahead and say $390. He gets his commission, and he promises the moon for the sales tech to come deliver on. Well, I here come. I'm the sales tech. I mean, here I come into a home that has like 10,000 German roaches. Like, literally, there's the little light gold brown ones. They're the ones you don't really want. These big, ugly, the big ones that are dark. That come, they're not a problem, okay? They're just coming from your malts and, and, and your bushes and all those things. Rake that stuff back. Get a little bit away from the house. They're going to stray in. Stomp them, vacuum, you know, sweep them away. That's fine. Not a big deal. The little, the little golden ones, that's the ones you don't want. 10,000 in the house. Open the cabinet. They're falling up above the fridge. Open the refrigerator. It's all in the lining. Over here's a pile of coal. I mean, everywhere. Here comes Fred. Oh, yeah. They'll get them all gone one time. And I'm thinking, Fred, you went to the same school I did. You know good and well we could rid every roach in that house. But one little egg sac's going to pop out and there's going to come another 20 or 30 roaches in a couple of weeks. And you know what they do? They call back two days later. I got more roaches. They didn't clean. Oh, Jeff, go back up. Fred, you know it's a process when there's that many. Well, that's your problem, not mine. I got my sale. God doesn't do that. Numbers chapter 23, verse number 19. God is not man. Hear the word of God. God says, God is not man that he should lie. If you realize what that says, you could almost be offended if it were not true. You know what God just says? Hey, I'm not like you. You lie. I don't lie. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. And here's the question. It's rhetorical. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And the answer is yes. God has spoken. He will do it. God has spoken. He will fulfill it. God will do what he says. God makes these promises, and they are true. Look at Romans 15. Got your Bible? Look at verse 4. This was last week's text. Look at it. Verse 4. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, 
we call it Old Testament, their Bible. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So here's what happened. God makes these promises and then God has the promises written down not to remind Himself. Some of you that own businesses or been to someone's house and you said, I'll do that and that and that for this price and you didn't write it down and there was nothing drawn up and you do the job and the person pays you this much money and you're like, yeah, that's not how much it's supposed to be. And they're like, that's what you said. I'm like, no, oh, you didn't write it down. You say, Jeff, why did God write the Old Testament? Why did he write it down? He did not write it down to remind himself of what he said. He wrote it down to inform his people and to remind his people. Why? We are ignorant of the promises of God, so we need to read the Bible, find the promises of God. But here's what I find. Even when I see the promises of God, I tend to forget the promises of God, and I have to be reminded. I want to inform you. I want to remind you. I want you to claim my promises. God says, literally, I encourage people to do this. Find a promise of God and bring it before God. Not arrogantly, but confidently and boldly. God, you said this. I'm holding you to it. You know what God says? Faith. I like faith. I'm going to do that. He wants you to claim the promise of God. Say, Jeff, now what does verses 9 through 12 have to do with this discussion that we've been in? What is this transition? And I'll admit it's a little rough here. It's a little rough. Paul's going along talking about the weaker brother and the stronger brother. And then he just kind of transitions into this string of quotes. So I want to offer the following. I believe as Paul is looking at the weaker and the stronger brother issue 2,000 years ago in the Roman church. Now, a while ago, I started with a string of 14 areas that is in our day. But as Paul looks at Rome, apparently it becomes pretty clear the main issue, among other things, is the Jews and the Gentiles are struggling to get along. They are different. The Jews and the Gentiles, they have strong opinions, they have strong beliefs, and they have very differing beliefs on holy days, should we have them or not. Every day is alike. No, this day is special. On foods, these things are unclean and these are clean. And over here is the Gentile saying, it's all clean. Who's right and who's wrong? So here's these Jews that for 1,500 years have had this relationship with God and the Word of God and these promises and these these laws and things, and all of a sudden here comes Gentiles in and they're claiming our Messiah, the Christ, and they're living differently than we've ever lived. What is going on? And Paul says, okay, hold on. You have differences, but you need to realize. If you want to write it down. Gentiles, us, here's Paul's point in verses 9 through 12. Gentiles, the Jews were God's people first. Like it or not, that's the way it is. They were God's people first. Jews, here's what you need to realize. The Gentiles were in the plan of God all along. All along it was there. You didn't see it. Maybe you didn't want to see it, but it was in there all along. And then Paul throws out a series, a string of texts to prove his point. Can we have Luke 24, verse 44? You see this? Watch this. And I'm only looking for one thing. I'm not going to digest the text. This is Jesus after he's resurrected. Watch what the Bible, watch what the Bible says. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, he, Jesus, says to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, watch this list, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Jesus says, everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. I'm going to get just logistical and a little bit kind of teachery for just a, 30 seconds. Give me 30 seconds. Here we go. Your Bible, your Old Testament has a fourfold arrangement. It's law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Law of Moses. And then it goes into historical books. And then it goes into poetry. And then it finishes with prophecy. 17 books of prophecy. Five of these prophecy books are a little larger called major prophets. And then 12 called minor, a little bit smaller books. That, you have a fourfold arrangement. The Jews did not have the arrangement of their, of their Old Testament in the form that you do. You say, what did they have? They had the law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings, the first book of the writings is the Psalms. And so what Paul does, he says, Jews, you need to know that the Gentiles were in the plan of God all along. I'm going to use your scriptures to show you that the plan of God all along was to ultimately culminate in this unity of love and unification of Jew and Gentile, both praising the Lord. And he strings together. He pulls verses out of Psalms, the lead book of the writings. He pulls a text out of Deuteronomy, the law. And he pulls a text out of Isaiah, the prophet. I'm going to show you from your Bible God's plan all along was unity among Jews and Gentiles. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Jews were first. Jews had a covenant with God. They were first, and yet the Gentiles are going to get in on the blessings of God. Would you notice a quick thought before we leave verse 8 and 9? This stands out to me. I hope you're reading the Bible. I had someone just this week say, Jeff keeps referring to reading through the New Testament. He referred to the book of Mark. Are we in the book of Mark? I'm like, yes, we're getting ready to go into the book of Hebrews soon. We have a reading plan. I have a copy of it right up here. If you want to get in on that, it's not too late. Read your Bible. But I want to encourage you. Do not be, I feel like many of the Jews were when it comes to reading the Word of God. I think some people read the Bible on a regular basis, but they read too quickly. Or, this is important, we can read with pride and preconceived notions. Pride, reading the text, but we have pride and preconceived notions. I already have my ideas of what theology should be. And so when I read the Word of God, I'm not letting it affect me. I'm looking for passages that reinforce what I already believe or what I want to believe. I'm going to invite you, be careful of doing that. Many people do that. If you do that, you're going to miss very clear truths, very obvious truths. You say, Jeff, what are you talking about? The Jews read these passages over and over. They've heard the Psalms where David says, I will praise you among the Gentiles. Watch the, watch the, the progression. Paul, uh, David says, I'm going to praise you among them. Not gloating. God, you've protected me. you provided for me. I'm going to praise you among the Gentiles in hopes that they will start joining in on that too. Verse number 10 here is pulled from Deuteronomy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with. So it's among the Gentiles. Now it's like, hey, Gentiles, join with the Jews. Join with us. Verse number 12. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. Again, not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Among the Gentiles, join with the Jews. It's progressing. It will happen. 
I want to propose to you that none of these things would have been the first time as Paul uses them and the Roman reader reads this and like, I've never heard. Is this really in the Bible? Oh, it's in the Bible. We've never read this before. No, they've read it before. They've never put it together. Can we have Genesis 12? I'm going to put this. I'm going to propose to you that the Jews had read each of the passages that Paul puts forth in Romans 15. And they certainly would have read these verses in Genesis 12. This would have been like their birth certificate. Verse 1, Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord, so we're talking about confirming promises. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Hey, Abram, leave here. You're blessed. You have a lot of possessions. You're in the city life. This is most, one of the most civilized, civilized places in the world. Go from your country, leave here, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Yeah, where exactly is it at? You're going to be homeless, leave here, go, I'll give it to you. And I will make of you a great nation. Jews are very familiar with this. And I will bless you, familiar with that, and make your name great. Yes, that's our patriarch, that's our father, the Jews would say. Paul, or God says, so that you will be a blessing. And it continues, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. This is God making promises. And once he says this, it's going to happen. And the Jews would be all in on every one of those points. Yes, yes to that, and yes to that, and all of those things. But what do they do with this last phrase? And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I believe the Jews read that. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Rejoice with his people, O Gentiles. David says, I'm going to praise God among the Gentiles. So there's this invitation, Gentiles join with us. Our God is so great, you need to help us praise Him. So they're seeing all these things, but I'm wondering, did no scribe or scholar or rabbi ever step back and say, hold on, whoa, 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 guys, come out. Is this saying what I'm thinking it's saying? What do you think it's saying? The Gentiles are going to join in with us. Right. Uh, that means they need to become Jewish proselytes. That's not what's happening in Romans 15. They're still Gentiles. This looks like they're going to be brought in as the people of God. They don't have a covenant. God doesn't owe them anything. But He's going to show them mercy on top of the covenant that He has with the Jews. Please hear me this morning. One of the things that I think Paul illustrates in verses 9 through 12 is our tendency, again, to approach the Scriptures with pride and preconceived notions, and we miss the obvious, impactful things of Scripture. Please don't do that. Let the Bible say what it says when you read it. First thought this morning, God makes promises that are true. Second thought is also verses 7 through 9. It's this. Christ offers service that glorifies God. Christ, so God makes these promises. Christ offers service that glorifies God. I'm about to say something you've heard a hundred times. But don't let it just fall upon deaf ears. Here it comes. The glory of God is the purpose of all creation. So Jeff, we've heard that so often. It's kind of okay. I think we got it. No, listen. The glory of God is the purpose of all creation. You're a created being. You say, God owes me comfort. God owes me pleasure. God owes me security. The scriptural perspective is God does not owe you any of those things. You owe a life of giving glory to God no matter what it takes. But I'm telling you, we default to an American 21st century way of thinking. 
I've been doing good, God. I've been abiding by the rules. You're supposed to be blessing me, and you're, you have me in a tough time right now. Creation is designed and purposed to glorify God. Look at verse 15. It's not going to be on the screen. If you have an open Bible in front of you, which I would encourage you to have, scan through verses 6 through 11. Scan through verses 6 through 11. I'm going to tell you, if you were to read this 10 times in a row, and just say, what's one of the main themes? You could not miss the glory of God. The words glorify, glory, praise, sing, extol, which again means to praise enthusiastically. Eight times, listen to that. Eight times in six verses. This is a dominant theme. I want to propose to you based off verse 8. That if anyone is bent and determined that God will be glorified, it is Jesus Christ. Jesus, more than anyone else, my Father will be glorified. He will be shown as truthful. I will go fulfill the promises. You get the picture? God the Father is going to make these promises. God the Son is going to make the promises good and effective. I will see to it that He is seen as truthful. And the promises He made to the patriarchs, I will bring it to pass. I will make it happen. Verse number 7. The glory of God is dominant. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Christ, you have a monopoly on the family of God you're in. It's just you, Father, Son, Spirit. You're not three different gods, one God. Why would you let us into the family of God? Because I want more glory going to the Father. Verse 8. I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. To confirm the promises. I want you to consider for a moment what great lengths Christ went to make God look truthful and to glorify God. Watch. The eternal Son of God, the one and only Son of God, entered the earth. He who is with outside, outside of time and space. Get the picture. Here's space. Christ is eternal spirit, the Son of God. Spirit has no body yet until 2,000 years ago. He's outside of space. He's outside of time, transcends time. He makes time. It's there, but he enters time and space as a Jewish man. Why? To subject himself to the lifestyle of the Jews so that he could show God as truthful and glorify God. Read the text, verse 8, one more time. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He literally entered the Jewish lifestyle. Why? To show God's truthfulness. Christ subjects himself to become a Jewish man and then puts himself under the very law that he made. And I'm going to use a very weak illustration if I can. This is a weak one. I don't want you to blow off that Christ subjected himself to the laws that he made. Don't blow that off. How many are here this morning? I think it's quite a few. How many are here this morning you have, are currently or have at some point in your life received a paycheck as a teacher in a school system? Would you raise your hand? I know I have. Look, hold it, hand up high. Wow, more than I thought. Look over here. There's like six or seven in this one section right here. Tons, right? Kids are getting ready to go back to school. And some of you are still teachers right now. So you're in what, what we call, at Oakwood, we call in-service, right? You say, what's in-service? In-service is where the teachers get to be the students, Okay, so Jeff, what's your point? I'm not being mean. I'm not having, I do have one person in mind. They're not here. I've sat in in in-service teacher sessions where teachers who would give their students demerits in upper levels 
or spankings in lower levels if those students talk out of turn. I already told you, and write them up. As well they should. I told you ten times, you keep disrupting class, you're getting a spanking. That was old school, I know they can't do it anymore. I started teaching in 1995. Everything was on a piece of paper back then. And that's my point I'm about to make. I've sat in in-service sessions where when computers were starting to be introduced, and I am totally like computer illiterate, and I'm totally dependent on the IT guy who's up there trying to tell us how to log on to a computer and how to record attendance and lunch order, right? And um, grades and all those things. I've been in in-service sessions where there are teachers who would spank and give demerits if their kids talked, but they cannot stop talking while the IT guy's trying to tell us how to do the computer work. And they're the very ones after an hour who want to raise their hand where we're ready to go work in our rooms. They want to raise their hand. And how do you log on? What do you do? And he covered that 45 minutes. Oh, that's right. You were talking about your grandkids. Can you tell I'm still bitter? I need to hear this. This is important. And you're over there just yakking. Like, be quiet. Here's the point. Obedience was beneath them. It was beneath them. Now, my students better do what I say. But now I'm the student. I'll just talk all I want. Can't be quiet. So, Jeff, what does that have to do with anything? I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He put himself under the very laws he created. He lived as a Jewish man. What does that mean? He was circumcised. He worked a job as a carpenter where he would bleed and sweat and get tired. He's baptized. He has no need. He has no sins to repent of. He pays taxes. He pays a temple tax that is a temple to him. He goes to the temple. I'm assuming he offered sacrifices that represent him. He's putting, I'm becoming Jewish is what he could say. He goes to the temple. He's faithful down there. Goes to the feasts. He, lim- he who made all foods, he who made taste buds, limits himself to the foods that the Jews would eat. Why? Because I'm going to make the Father look truthful. Do you see the lengths that Christ will go? But the greatest length he went is that the law, the ultimate service of Christ was not just putting himself... I don't, I, he could have said, I don't have to do this. You have to do this. I'm God. You do what I say. I don't have to do what I... But he comes and he puts himself under the very laws that he had given to the Jews. Kept them perfectly. And then ultimately, the law demanded a sacrifice for sin. And it's as though Jesus says, stop killing those lambs. Stop killing the goats and the bulls. It's not doing anything permanent. It's just covering. Kill me. And he laid down his life. As the strong, doing for the weak what they could never do. And as the son of God, sacrificing and subjecting himself so that the father ultimately looked good. If you want to write this down. Jesus subjected and sacrificed and lived a life and died a death that glorified God. How? He showed that God, if you want to write it down, always does what He says He would do. I have a covenant with the Jews, and I will fulfill that covenant. I will do what it takes to make Abraham great and let Abraham be the child of God. And any of his descendants who put their faith and trust in the Word of God and in the person of Christ. But He doesn't just stop there. Watch. Jesus' life and death not only proves that God does what He says He will do, Jesus' life and death proves that God will do more than what He says He will do. Get that. God does what He says. God does more than He says. Watch. 
Jews, you have a covenant. We're going to make it good. Gentiles, you don't have a covenant. All you can hope for is mercy. They have a covenant. God, you didn't have to give them any promises, but once you did, you're locked into it. Oh, here comes your son making that covenant good. Boy, I wish we could get in on that. I wonder if he would just give us some mercy. I wonder if you'd just give us some mercy. And in the process of fulfilling their covenant and promises, God says, oh, by the way, his death will count for you guys as well. You can and will have mercy. His death is enough to pay for a whole world's sin. Thirdly, lastly, so much in verse 13. I literally thought about making it a separate message, but we won't. Verse 13. The Spirit provides power and hope. So the Father, God the Father offers promises. Christ offers service that glorifies God. And we find in verse 13, the Spirit provides power and hope. Would you read verse 13 again? May the God of hope fill you. Here's this prayer again, much like verse 5. Paul's praying for a group of people here and telling them what his prayer is to this God. It's almost like he's doing two things at once. God, I'm praying this prayer for them. Hey, you guys, here's what my prayer is for you. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Here's the key in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. One more time. May the God of hope... You say, this sounds like a cycle. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing... So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I want to invite you this morning. Have hope. Have joy. Have peace. You say, how can we do that? Because God always does what He says He will do. And God does more than He said. I believe that with all my heart. I think when we get to heaven, it's going to be, wow, you did everything you said. And all of that too. You haven't even been told half of it. You can't even think of it. I'm doing so much more than I ever promised. I want to see the order of things in verse 13. But before, I want to just pull one word. you see the word peace in verse 13? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. William Barclay wrote about an English writer named H.G. Wells. Maybe you've seen a book or a movie made from a book that he wrote. He died, I think, in the 1940s. So what I'm about to tell you had to have happened before the 1940s. So it's in the early 1900s early to mid-1900s. Watch what Barclay writes. You've got to picture it to appreciate it. Barclay says of Wells that Wells, H.G. Wells, was on an ocean liner in New York Harbor. I've never been on an ocean liner. I've never been on a cruise. I've certainly never been in New York Harbor. I'm imagining even 80 years ago it was extremely busy. Watch. Wells was on an ocean liner in New York Harbor in the first half of the 20th century. He writes the following, quote, It was foggy. And apparently it was extremely foggy because he says, it was foggy. And suddenly, out of the fog, there loomed another liner. And the two ships slid past each other with only yards to spare. Those of you who have been on a cruise, get ready to pull in. Yeah, we'll be in New York Harbor in just a little bit. Okay, it's great. Stand out there, man, it's awfully foggy. And all of a sudden, And you're looking at somebody like, yards away. Scary. 
Barclay says he was suddenly face to face with what Wells called the general large dangerousness of life. In a moment, throwing water, each other, no doubt. Wow. Did you see? Did they even know? We could have died. I know. I don't even think they died. You guys know what just. How did that happen? No doubt people on the other boat saying the same thing. The general large dangerousness of life. Barclay says, It is hard not to worry. For man is characteristically a creature who looks forward to guess and fear. The only end of that worry is the utter conviction that whatever happens, God's hand will never cause His child a needless tear. Things will happen, Grace View, that we cannot understand. But if we are sure enough of love, we can accept with serenity even those things which wound the heart and baffle the mind. Do you have peace? You're like, Jeff, we could die at any moment. I see the evidence all the time. Tractor trailer blows a tire out. Could have been, could have, I get it. Leaving here today. You're in danger, I'm just telling you. You're in danger. Aneurysm, strokes, heart attacks. I'm not trying to scare you. This is real world. Something's going to take us. But nothing affects your life but what God allows and what God has a plan for. One more time at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I believe there's a progression through verse 13. It goes something like this. Would you write it down? God makes promises. That's verses 8 to 12. God makes promises. doesn't have to, but God makes promises. I encourage you to know them. So what happens after that, again, implied in the text. God makes promises. Number two, God's Spirit wrote the promises down. We know that from verse 4, but we also know that 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 21. It's on the screen. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No man just decided, I'm going to write the Bible. How did it happen? Men, so there are men, 40 men had a part in this, but they're much more secondary in how it happened. No no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Watch, God makes promises, the Holy Spirit writes the promises down. Third, here's what's implied in verse 13. The Holy Spirit, by His power, helps hearers believe God's promises. It's important. God makes promises. The Spirit writes the promises down. We get to hear the promises. And then the Holy Spirit does what's really impossible in and of ourselves. The Spirit helps us to believe the promises. Wow, look what God says. This sounds impossible, but I'm choosing to believe it. You said, Jeff, what would happen? Fourth thing. Belief in promises creates hope. What is hope? Confident expectation. Keep putting it together. God makes promises. The Spirit writes the promises down. We read or hear someone speaking the promises. The Holy Spirit helps us to believe the promises. All of a sudden, because we're believing, now we start having hope. Confident, confident expectation. I expect this to happen. I'm confident. It's not I hope so. This is going to happen. I now have hope because the Spirit's helping me to believe the promises. You know what happens next. That hope fills believers with joy. And peace. We don't have joy and peace because circumstances are great. 
and easy and pleasurable and comfortable, we have joy and peace even when conditions are difficult and extremely hard. Why? Hope is fueling joy. Watch. Here I am. I have hope, confident expectation because I believe the promises of God in the moment, even in the difficult time, because I know it's going to get better. It is really going to get better. It ends really well for me. I now have hope. But, man, you're in a hard time. That's okay. I have hope. I have joy. I have peace. It's okay because I've already, I know where this ends. Conclude with these thoughts. God the Father makes promises. The Son makes the promises good. The Spirit makes the promises believable. I have to ask you, do you know the promises of God? Think of a promise of God right now. Don't think of, I will never leave you or forsake you, because that's what three-fourths of you just thought of. Don't think of that one. That's the obvious one. Right? I just got you. Everybody, if I were to open, name a promise of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you know the promises of God? Do you spend time in the Word of God? That's why it was written down. This is where your hope comes from. Expose yourself to the Scriptures. The Spirit gives you confidence and faith. That results in hope, which the hope is going to give you joy. You're like, I'm just really struggling with joy and peace right now. It's because you don't have hope that it's going to be better. You think this is the way it's always going to be. That's why you're you're there. Spend some time in the Word of God. Learn the promises of God. And let that Holy Spirit work in you to develop hope, which results in joy and peace. Do you have a favorite one? Don't say it out loud. Do you have favorite promises? Like, really? If you don't, you're probably a very weak Christian struggling through life. Do you have promises that you say, Jeff, I have some. Right now, I regularly rehearse. I really need them. Good. Do you have some that you regularly like? God, you're God, and I'm just me. But since you're God, you said this. Do you hold him to them? Do you claim them? You should. I'm not going to preach these. I promise. I promise. I want to give you a string of them. You're like, oh, Jeff, I thought you were done. Watch. Romans 6. Somebody here, you need this. Romans 6. Here it comes. You're just getting beat up. You're saved, but you're getting beat up by some sin. You need to go home and study. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Read it again. We know our old self, the old sin nature, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It doesn't mean it's annihilated. It means it's powerless. You don't have to obey it. Watch the end of the verse. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Did you die in Christ when he was on the cross? Did that count for you? If so, you don't have to obey the sin that's been whipping you lately. Claim Romans 6, 6 and 7 like God I'm just going to keep rehearsing this sin. You're not my boss. I don't have to do you. Father, help me. I think I'm about to lose this. But your promise, I'm claiming it. Romans 8. You claim this one lately? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, you see verse 29. Do you really honestly know, hey, I'm in a difficult spot this morning, Brother Jeff, but I know it ends well. I do love God. I have been called according to His purpose. Is there anybody here this morning, Romans 10? Look at verse 13. This is a promise. You need to claim it. It was used when I came to Christ. Watch what the Bible says. Everyone, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Anybody here this morning, you're like, Jeff, I'm not a Christian. I really don't know that I'm going to heaven. I'm really not sure. I think I might be, but I have about 30, 40% of doubt. You need to claim this. You need to say, God, you said everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. I believe that Jesus is not only the Lord, he's my Lord. His death on the cross is enough. I'm claiming Romans 10, 13. Christ, you're my Lord. I receive your forgiveness at this moment. One I claim all the time, James chapter 1. Can we have verse 5? Somebody needs this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you're like, Jeff, I'm right. I'm literally right now. I need some real wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But verse 6 really should have, I should have included it. But let him ask him faith. God, you said anybody can ask. I really need some skill in life. I need some wisdom, some knowledge, some understanding. I, I'm just really blowing it. I don't know what to do in this situation. I want the path that pleases you the most. You said you would show it. And Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to obey. So please show it, and I expect you to do it. And is there a Christian this morning? You say, Jeff, I know I'm saved. But I've been being whipped by some sin, and I'm just walking around a shell and defeated. 1 John 1, 9 is one I go to often. If we confess our sins, He is faithful, and He always does it, and just, He has the right to do it, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Christian, I want to encourage you, please get familiar with the promises of God. God makes promises. He had them written down. Listen, Jesus Christ is so consumed with the glory of God and God His Father being called truthful that He did whatever it takes to make God's promises confirmed. Know this, God will stop at nothing to righteously fulfill the promises of God. And then I want to ask you, which promise of God do you need to claim today? Is there a Christian, you're like, I need that 1 John 1, 9, Lord, I'm, I just need to confess my sin. I need cleansing. I'm tired of feeling guilty and weak. I want victory. Is there a Christian, you say, I need, I need Romans 6. I need victory over a sin. I need to get a right perspective. Is there someone you're so discouraged in circumstances you need to remind of Romans 8, 28. God is working this out for my good. And is there a person here this morning you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you need to claim the promise.